Welcome to JR Art Loud. My name is Judy Herman, and I am so excited today because I'm with Naomi Sorkin, and we're at the Playground Theatre, and we are going to talk about the extraordinary Ida Rubenstein. But actually, first of all, welcome the extraordinary Naomi Sorkin. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to be here with you. I would say extraordinary because, first of all, you're a wonderful fit for this story. But secondly, we should start with you. I mean, you're no slacker yourself in being able to do absolutely anything and everything on stage and possibly off, are you? Well, um, it, it, it has been an incredible journey, I have to say, to get here with... And by the way, I pronounce it Ida because... Oh. Ida Rubenstein, because her name came... She chose Ida. Her mm. real name was Lydia. So oh. Lydida, you know, Lydida. So... Ida. Ida. You, was this her looking for a Russian name because I dancers had to have them, do you Well, think? I don't know. I think she just, you know, decided that she was extraordinary and wanted to give herself a different name. So it has been a, a, a long and interesting journey to get here. And I, myself, was what's known as a dramatic ballerina. So, in effect, even though I was dancing from a t very, very young age. My first professional job, I was 14, and I joined American Ballet Theatre at 17, and I rose very quickly. So, but the fact of the matter is, it was always the dramatic that appealed to me, as it did to Ida. And in fact, I would say, from the time I was a young girl, I was absolutely, totally enamored with the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev and the Ballet mm. Russe, and all of their repertoire, and so it was an incredible thing when the American late William Como, Bill Como, he had founded what is now, what it, well, what was called Always Dance Magazine in America. He came to me at one point and he said, I've just researched this article on Ida Rubenstein. She had an extraordinary life. You must play her. You must tell her story. You look like her. I certainly don't full face, but there are profiles with it. Absolutely. There are pictures of her in Salome that could be me. Mm. So that, on a superficial level, was a reason that inspired him to tell me I must play her. But also, he said, you know, this incredible life journey from unbelievable fame to total reclusivity um, I think at that time he thought she had become a nun, which she didn't, but she did convert yeah. to Catholicism. I think that must be one thing you haven't done. <laughs> no, I definitely haven't. Yet. I'm very, very <laughs> proud of my Jewish roots. I would call myself culturally Jewish. I'm secularly Jewish. I'm not a religious person, but I'm very much attached to my Jewish background. And, and so your family were originally from a Russian background. That's right. So my, all my, grand, my grandparents, great-grandparents, and they emigrated to America, um, to Chicago. And in fact, I had a very illustrious grandfather who sadly I didn't know. He was dead. When, but he was a doctor, a doctor and quite a kind of Hebrew scholar and all-around Renaissance man. And so everybody who was anybody of culture, Jewish, people like Golda Meir, mm. uh, people like Albert Einstein, Rachmaninoff, who was not Jewish, but they, they all passed through my grandparents' house in Chicago. Mm. 
when they traveled there. And there was, in fact, a Jewish community center named after my grandfather for a while. His what was his name? His name was Max Dolnick. Well, I'm glad that you named him. It's nice, isn't it, to name people. So let's look at a bit about Eva and where your careers sort of cross over, as you say, not, not in the nun department uh, and not in the conversion department. But as I said, I think you couldn't make this up. I mean, I think you have made a film about her, but she sounds like the subject for a very rich film as well as a well, really imaginative I've stage show always wanted to uh, do the feature film of her mm. life. In fact, the short film, which was called Madame Ida and was um, written and directed by uh, another, a New York Jewish mm. director called mm. Lisa Farrell, in a short film, uh, obviously, we could not in any way begin to tell her whole story. So Lisa sent the film on the last day of her life and with a kind of oh. a almost a Jean Genet subplot of the secretary and the housekeeper, uh, almost like the maids or something. Mm -hmm. And they're just a couple of tiny flashbacks, and at the very end, she goes up on her points and does the dying swan and dies. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm grimacing slightly, because it sounds really sad, and this life was so rich and textured and multicolored. Uh, it, it sounds sad yeah. not to cover the, 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 well, the good bits. We, we were, and, and in fact, that film enjoyed quite a lot of success. Mm. It was shown at the Viennese, at mm. the London Short Film Festival, mm. in Capri, in Paris, somewhere else in Italy, and mm. St. Petersburg, where they kept it in their archives at the Theatre Museum of St. Petersburg, which was very flattering, mm. because that was where she was raised. She was not born there. She was born in the Ukraine, in Kharkov. Ah, Harkov. Yes. Well, Harkov or Harkov. I've been there. Have you been there? <laughs> My synagogue, and I am quite involved in that, uh -huh. is a, it's a liberal synagogue. We support the Jewish community in Ukraine, so we're oh, really? very excited now to have a, a Jewish president in Ukraine. But I have been there to try and help doing, you know, with the support. Oh, how interesting. No, I didn't know that. And in fact, um, she was orphaned at a very early age and was taken in by this aunt and uncle in mm. St. Petersburg, mm. and then raised, like, I mean, I don't know about your ancestors, but mine would have been in the shtetls. She was raised as if she was royalty. Mm. I mean, they were phenomenally wealthy, which, again, was mm. extraordinarily rare for a Jewish family at that time. Yes, yeah, so we're not talking Fiddler on the Roof here, are we? No, we're <laughs> definitely not talking <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, so here we've got... Either. Well, you've got you starting your career at 17, or before even, yeah. and do we know when Ida's career began, how she was spotted, how did she get well, to the ballet? I do know, and one of the things that I have to uh, absolutely emphasize, because I do think she was extraordinary for her time, so we're talking 1905, 1906, mm. she had already fallen in love with the theater, and dance, but had very little training, but she decided initially that she was going to do, she wanted to do Antigone. She wanted to play Antigone. Well, she just decided, just like that. Just like that. And I mean, she knew the story, doesn't it? Uh, of course, she knew this. She knew this. She, she was unbelievably well-educated. She spoke six or seven languages. Um, I, wish, I wish this was video, because I was just rolling my eyes in disbelief there. She decided that she wanted to play Antigone, and she... I mean, this, is, this was when she was 19, or, you know, 18, 19. 
And she went and approached none other than Leon Baxt, wow. whom was he was totally smitten by her. I don't mean in a romantic sense, mm. but he was Jewish, of course. Mm. Leon Baxt was Lev something. I don't think I even realized that, to be honest. Yes, Baxt mm. was Jewish. Mm. And he was very taken with her. And he convinced her, he said, you must not do the entire play because one of the major companies, I think, either had just done the entire play or was about to do the entire play. He said, you cannot, you, you know, you must only do one act. Mm. She went off to Greece with her tutor to do research, came back, and then I think she approached Alexander Glazunov, who was, you know, eminent composer, to do music for her. This is at 19. Who's, who's got that sort of poise and confidence at 19 that the world belongs to them? Well, she did. She did. And, I mean, of course one cannot deny that having access to ma uh, you know, a vast wealth gave her that mm. ability to be able to hire people like that. Nevertheless... She performed it in her aunt's salon, and... Oh, is this the front room, practically? No, a, big, a biggish front room, I'm guessing. I imagine <laughs> it was palatial, yeah. you know. And, and she was seen there by... So that was her first, mm. the first time Diaghilev saw her. So that was the beginning. Then, I, don't know, I won't give away details, too many details, mm. but then she decided to do Salome. But I love all that she decided to do, and what is brilliant, always such a central female role. I mean, Antigone, the men are neither here nor there, are they? Um, no. And Salome, yes, well, iconic or what? Iconic or what? Jewish story. Oscar Wilde's Salome, mm. though, which was already considered outrageous <laughs> every, you know, mm. in Paris. and uh, So this is where she got into big difficulties because she went to Paris. At mm. this point, her sister, her eldest, she had one sister, Irene, who had married a doctor in Paris, um, Dr. Lewinson, and when they got wind of what she was planning to do, they said that it's absolutely not possible. You cannot go on the stage. Nobody from our background or class or education goes on the stage. And to make matters worse, worse they found... Box design for the costume, <laughs> or, or lack of same, or a lack of <laughs> costume. I mean, mm. you know, by by today's standards, mm. she it wasn't naked, but by the standards of nineteen mm. six or seven or whatever, it was pretty much close to naked. Yes, once you took off that seventh veil, <laughs> exactly. So um, they threatened her, and she just thought, "Oh, this is ridiculous. Uh, they wouldn't do anything." They used his credentials as a doctor, and she was locked up mm. in the sanatorium at San Clude, which was virtually, uh, you know, a mental institution. I think I've even heard of it. It was outside of mm. Paris. It was a very famous place mm. because it was where the famous Mesmer, and it was where F Freud studied. In fact, it was... It was a place where aristocrats went to view kind of experiments done on with hypnotism and stuff on patients. It, it, so it was a famous institution. She was locked up there. And we don't know for how long, but one would surmise a few weeks because until the word got back to her aunt in St. Petersburg, it would have taken some time, 
and word to come back to Paris, and she was released. Mm. Now, at that age, whatever it was, 20 at that point, 20, 21, she got home and she thought, I will never have control over my life unless I marry and have, have my freedom that way. So she had a cousin who I think had always been besotted with her, and she got him to agree to marry her. And I'm sure he thought, oh, you know, once, once we're married and everything, she'll settle down. None of it. She pretty much dumped him right after the honeymoon and went off to Palestine to research Salome. Oh, she actually went to Palestine. She re- did, did do her stuff, didn't she? She did her stuff. I mean, I think she was amazing. Mm. Absolutely. So, so now we've got a woman on her own, although married. With her chaperones and servants, of mm. course, not entirely mm. alone. But yes, mm. very scandalous. Dumped her poor husband. I think I'm sorry for him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. Poor Vladimir. Oh. <laughs> Poor Vladimir. But and anyway, and, and she then proceeded. I'm not going to give away no. too many details because it's very much featured in the play. And you okay. d- I no, no, I didn't want. I mean, let's just get the trajectory. So, what's her next success, her next failure, or scandal, or all three? Her next big thing is that Diaghilev is forming his company, mm. the Ballet Russe, and because she had already engaged, studied with Fokin, and engaged him mm. to choreograph the Dance of the Seven Veils. Mm. He suggested her, they decided to do Cleopatra, and none of the kind of normal ballet russe ballerinas at that time, they had more of a kind of a 19th century figure, they were not exotic, they were not, you know, unusual in that way, and so he suggested Ida to play Cleopatra, Mm -hmm. which happened opposite Nijinsky. It was a success beyond success, it was you know, the talk of Paris, it was the most exotic. Well, I think many things have been written about the explosion of the Ballet Russe Mm. onto Paris. And she was the center of it, more so than the proper ballerinas, more so than Anna Pavlova, more so than Karsavana, who, you know, there was absolutely no comparison as Mm. to what they were as Mm. dancers compared Mm. to her, but she became this huge star. Why is it then that I have heard Kasovina and I read about her and obviously Pavlova? Why haven't I heard of Ida Rubinstein? Well, I think that had Ida Rubinstein only only been in the Ballet Russe, perhaps that legacy would have been written in gold writing and and stayed in the front of memory, but because she really wasn't a dancer in the way that the the, the proper dancers Mm -hmm. were, she then went on to do a lot of productions where she was acting, where she was miming, always with dance. And then in 1928, she created her own ballet company. Now, this is interesting to English. And she gave Frederick Astian his first job. You've mentioned almost every name that I can think of from ballet, certainly all the Russian ones, and now we move on to all the English ones? Yes, I mean, so she had an international company Mm. of young dancers. She had Nazinska, who was Nazinsky's sister and a famous Mm. choreographer. I mean, the the Royal Ballet does her her production of Lenos. 
Um, she was a great choreographer. She had Nazinska, she had Kurt Yersh. She worked only with artists of the highest caliber. And as an, in a sense, if she had chosen to be Ninette de Valois mm -hmm. and just create this company and give it over, I think her legacy would have remained. But her fatal flaw was that she chose to put herself at the center of mm -hmm. every, every work. And at this point, she was in her early 40s. Oh, so not quite, I can't remember when Fontaine stopped because Fontaine. Oh, in her 60s, I yeah, think. Really, because Fontaine I, I saw as a child, and believe me, you'd once seen Never Forgotten. I mean, you know, I, I, I can dream of it now. It was I mean, she was so stunning. How wonderful. Well, unfortunately, Ida chose to carry on. And remember, she was not a proper, properly trained mm -hmm. dancer in the sense that I am, or, <laughs> you know, the way that... Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she opened herself up to ridicule at uh, that point. Um, and we do cover this in the play yeah. as well. We're not glossing over the... And I think because of that, perhaps, mm -hmm. she wasn't historically, at least in the West, taken seriously, mm -hmm. which is completely unjust. You know, she was an mm -hmm. unbelievable empresaria. We owe her many, many incredible works of... Not just music, well, we, uh, and the famous work piece that everybody knows, Ravel's Bolero. Mm -hmm. She commissioned that. She commissioned from Stravinsky, Baiser de la Fée, which is still done. So wait a minute, you, when you say commission, you mean she commissioned Ravel to write it? That's right. That's she commissioned Ravel to write it. So Torval and Dean owe a lot to her too. <laughs> Torval and Dean owe a lot to her. Absolutely. It just gets better and better. No, it, it, is, it is really an extraordinary <laughs> story. And so many, many works of, in particular music, she also, she did something that to even today people don't do. She, she had seasons with both plays and ballets. She commissioned um, André Gide. She commissioned um, Paul Claudel. So, you know, she was always working with the top, the best, mm. She also was, you know, she was um, mentored by and became Sarah Bernhardt's successor. So she did all, she did Sarah's, not all of them, but she did many of her roles. So she could act, really act. So she really could act. Mm. She could act and she obviously had an amazing presence mm. and persona and charisma. Yeah. yeah, I was guessing she must have done, mustn't she? And there's confidence as well. But now that there's a private life running alongside this that's actually sometimes strange, sometimes scandalous. I mean, how can you be a nurse um, bisexual? You could, of course you yeah. can. I mean, so many different things at once that there seems, seems to encompass, you know, the, the lover of so many different famous people. It just, just, just goes on and, and converts Catholicism. It's an awful lot to, to take in. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, I think that, I don't think she, I mean, you know, of course we don't actually know. I don't think she had masses and masses of lovers, but she did have two very famous lovers, one of each sex. <laughs> Why not? Even-handed she was. <laughs> one was, and I, this is my belief that she really, really fell in love with the artist, the American artist, Romaine Brooks. 
that was not that long-lasting affair, but it was an important one. Romaine painted her many times. And um, they went through the sort of up to the First World War together kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then Walter Edward Guinness, Lord Moyne, who was very much married with his family, part of the government in Britain. And he was clearly besotted with her, and he remained her lover and her patron. Not only did she have her own funds, he opened his coffers to her as well. And so they, until he was assassinated, they, they remained close. We don't know anything much about the assassination, nothing to do with, with her, I hope. No, we, no. we do know about oh. the assassination, and it's greatly ironic because he was assassinated by what was known, became known as the Stern Gang, the Leahy oh. Group, because he was the first minister to the Middle East. Oh. That's so ironic and horrible, isn't it? Horrible. And I think it was after they rejected um, receiving the, was it the Sturma, the ship carrying... Oh, one of the ships. Are, are we talking after the Second World this War now? This is the Second World yeah. War. Oh, the, this is the Second World War we're talking. Right, so the Stone Gang, for anyone listening who doesn't know, were took very direct action like the IRA. They were they were Jews in Israel, the not quite, you know, the very early days as the state was trying to be, become established, um, and free itself from the British mandate, and they took direct action of a very violent type. Yes, and they assassinated him. So that was the... Uh, although she uh, was already a Catholic at that point. So why? Why Do we know why she converted to Catholicism? Well, I have my theory. And my theory is that she could never forgive her family directly, her sister and brother-in-law, for having her locked up. That, that is my theory. Oh, that's a really interesting one. You know, that, that, if you wanted to get back... Out of Jewish family, yeah, not just Christianity, but actually Catholicism is not not bad, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that that's what works for me. Yeah, yeah. well, let's we'll go with that, shall we? Okay. Uh, now, what about this nursing in both world wars? She would seem to have become a nurse somehow. Well, yes. I mean, another thing, one of the things that um, also gives us artistic license is she did keep her private life very mysterious. Mm -hmm. So. Not that much is documented about it. And, but clearly she had a, a truly compassionate nature. I, don't, you know, I think it was genuine. She turned her house over in, um, well, maybe it wasn't her. No, she first started a, a, a hospital in Montmartre and I think also gave of her house. And she personally, she personally nursed soldiers, although... In a, in a c outfit designed by Box. <laughs> <laughs> she was a showgirl to the end, wasn't she? Showmanship. It's showmanship, showwomanship, isn't it? And not only that, when she went on her retreats in mm. towards the end of her life, where every, everybody was in white, <laughs> she was in white silk. <laughs> <laughs> she was. Oh, I do wish... I do wish uh, we, we'd been around to actually meet her, but of course we are in a way, because you're going to bring her to us, aren't you? You're going, you're going to channel her, you're going to reveal her. So j just before we talk about how you're going to do that, just tell me a little bit more about your career, because you seem to have done, well, a lot of, and as I said, let's talk about the on-stage things I meant. That, that's quite a good parallel, isn't it? 
Yes, I mean, so it was, it, there's certain parallels in the fact that although I, I was, um, if I may say, very successful and well-known in New York, um, but I kind of resisted the confines of being in a ballet mm -hmm. company. I didn't feel that it gave me as much artistic freedom, perhaps, as I would have liked. And so I broke away very, very young, and I did something which, it's not so uncommon now, but it was when I, you know, I became a freelance ballet dancer, ballerina, you know, I would go, go and guest with companies all across America, both what is known as modern dance or mm -hmm. contemporary companies and ballet companies. I then had the wonderful um, opportunity to do a ballet by the great Lynn Seymour from the Royal Ballet, and we really bonded over her, her ballet of Rashomon, which was done for a big festival in Miami. And she recommended me to Lindsay Kemp at that time. Oh, Lindsay Kemp, too. <laughs> yes. Yes, because Lynn had retired. She wasn't mm. performing. And he had asked her to do uh, these two mm. roles for his company. He was creating a ballet called Nijinsky Il Mato, the mad one. And he'd asked her to be the ballerina, and she, mm. she recommended me. So that brought me to, it, well, it was a tour of Italy and also ultimately the Sadler's Wells. And um, because my, at that time, boyfriend, subsequent hus husband was English in New York, and he, we, he joined me when I was in Italy and we kind of mm. fell into to coming to the UK. So it's interesting that I also shared certain roles that have been unfortunately not in the ballet russe extravaganza, but I did have a Cleopatra mm. created for me. I also, um, because I was so much of a dramatic dancer, I did actually, once I was here, begin to act as well. And I had the good fortune of coming to the attention of an, a wonderful Polish director called Henryk Baranowski, who saw some of my work and asked me to play Nastasia Filipovna in The Idiot, which Ida played. I love The Idiot. I, I don't know. I haven't read that many Russian novels, but having seen that one dramatized on the television, I felt I had to read it and I couldn't put it down. Oh, it's an incredible novel. It, the prince is such an incredible character. Absolutely. Well, he's the sort of Jesus character, yeah. isn't he? He genuinely is saintly and, uh, and giving and all-encompassing, isn't he? Yes. So Ida played the idiot, so I played the idiot. And so there are, there are mm. interesting kind of parallels there. But, but more importantly, I think, unfortunately, I didn't have uh, access to her kind of wealth <laughs> <laughs> to be able to... I didn't aspire to creating a company, but if... If I'd had her funds, it would have been very, uh, very uh, enabling of work that I, wa that I wanted to do, yeah. But you stopped dancing, didn't you? Is that right? Well, I actually never stopped dancing. No. I didn't. It's just that the opportunities took me in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing two principal dancing roles in the West End, which I never would have <laughs> dreamed of in New York. I played Maggie in Brigadoon, and I... <gasps> 
I did. There's a lot, huge dancing role in uh, Grand Hotel, which I did. Oh, yes. Gosh, I, I must have seen you then. I've seen Grand Hotel. Well, oh. there were different versions. This was at the mm. Dominion Theatre, and it was. It, I only did it for mm. two months. Yeah, I wonder if I saw that one so or not. I did see another one, I know. But it's a, yes, I remember the dancer in it, yes. And that was, you know, very difficult mm. pas de deux. It was a huge, huge pas de deux. So I never stopped, I never stopped mm. dancing. And, and also, when I was first here, I would go back and forth mm. to New York, and I'd continue mm. to guest. And I also became a guest artist with somebody who's know, whose work is definitely very much known here, which is William Forsyth, Billy Forsyth. Mm. He was the he had for many years Ballet Frankfurt, and I went and uh, did. He has a great mas. I think it's his masterpiece called Artifact, which is a full-length ballet, and there's a central woman who is a speaking role as well as a movement role. Mm. And I, I, I took that role in a few countries with him, in Japan and Tokyo, in, Tokyo, in uh, where else did we go? Uh, Yokohama. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I did it in Frankfurt. I also in Stockholm and, you know, so. And oh. in, oh, with a Dutch national ballet, I was guest as well. It's interesting, ballet does get you about, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh, yes, it does. I mean, I had traveled the world. And I, in fact, I, speaking again, this has nothing to do really with Ida, but I was, did a tour to the Far East with um, a lovely dancer called Christopher Ponti. I was his partner. And we did a pas de deux to La Prévidi d'une Faune. And our one show, they came to me in the interval and they said, Christopher's just been taken to the hospital with a kidney stone. Could you do it as a solo? And I said, well, what? <laughs> you know, how am I going to? Somehow, I got out on that stage. I did my choreography. I did what I remembered of his choreography. And I improvised the rest. So I did an entire La Prémide du Fond oh. as a solo. So oh. Someone needs to write the play of your life, I think. Uh -huh. I suppose we'd better go back to your play of Ida's life, which interestingly must include quite a lot of dance because you have a choreographer, the director-choreographer. Di director-choreographer, yeah. yes. Well, yeah. I would, what, I would I, what I would say is, and, you know, actually, you know, someone who said, oh, I hope I'm going to see you dance. I've never seen you dance. Well, I would say that this is more, what you will mm. see in this play is more what I would call expressive movement rather than dance, mm. per se. But it still needs choreographing. But it definitely needs choreography. Mm. And because he has the vision of, you know, um, he also, a choreographer, by its very nature, knows how to move the stage in an mm. effective, dramatic way. And so I, I think there should be some very affecting scenes. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure there will, because it does sound totally, um, as you say, affecting. So what angle are you taking? It says original scenario of the interview that never happened. I, um, uh, so how, how is it done like a sort of interview looking back? How are you doing it? What's the way in? I, yes, uh, the way in. I, I will just mention very briefly because that mm. original scenario was written by two Russian women, mm. uh, Irina Yonason and Natalia Boltyanskaya. I met Irina at the Playground Theatre mm. where she was producing a play in Russian, and I just had this gut instinct that here are people who could help me tell Ida's story. And she uh, she did know who Ida was and decided, yes, I will go with this. So they created an original scenario which very much presumed that people 
knew who this woman was. And I realized uh, that to an audience in the West, it, it wouldn't be clear. But yes, the concept is, an, there is a journalist mm. who comes to interview her, and that sets things in motion. And Christian Holder, who has all also basically developed the script that you will now see, so he has written what we're calling the book. Yes, and the characters is interesting. You know, I, I thought that was another way in looking to see who is in it. Now, Remain is in it, this, this, this wonderful woman artist. And Ravel, I now know why he's in it, because I was wondering, Ravel, why? Why Ravel? For the most exciting reason I can possibly think of, her having actually commissioned Valera, for heaven's sake. Um, now, I did pass by the... Danuncio, I can, remind me, Danuncio. Okay, so Danuncio was a very, very famous Italian poet, mm. and and many other things. Actually, he ultimately became kind of a fascist, and um, oh. but but he was uh, he was taken to see Edith Rubinstein and Scheherazade, fell in love. He said, "Here are my legs of <laughs> San Sebastian. I've been waiting to write." the spectacle of San Sebastian, but I found the legs. Because San Sebastian was the martyr who yeah, was... With all the arrows. <laughs> all the arrows yeah. and everything. I think everybody sort of knows that it's really grisly, isn't it? He's standing there, and there are paintings, aren't they? Shot through with all sorts of arrows. It's quite horrible. Well, exactly. Well, Denuncia wrote that for Ida. And so it, Ida did that right after Ooh. she left Diaghilev, and she... The music for that was commissioned for no, no less than Debussy. So he became part of her circle, her creative circle, Danunzio. He was also a very, very, very famous womanizer. And I'm sure that he tried it on with Ida, but <laughs> that, that, that didn't happen. But he had actually had a very brief affair with Romaine. So she also was bisexual. Well, she was really primarily lesbian, but obviously they, she did have a fling with Denunzio and really mm. fell for him, but he wasn't that interested in her in that sense. He, uh, he really admired her art. And, but there was a time where the three of them were intertwined, and he, it was he through whom she met Romain. So there's kind of a menage a trois sense of mm. there's a scene with the three of them. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that, I really yeah. do. Now, so there are two other characters here, that, and we'll talk about the actors in a moment. There's Edward Clement and Soretto. Yes, so Edward Clement is our fictitious <laughs> journalist. So mm. that he is, a, he is a creation. Okay, right, and, and that's played by Adam Clayton Smith, so he doesn't get to play anything else. He doesn't no. need to, he's very busy then. And who was Soretto? So Soretto really was her housekeeper, but in our version, Soretto is an amalgamation, really, of the real Soretto, mm. who looked after Ida, and her secretary, who was actually called Madame Olivier. And this is, in, this is featured in the film. You get this mm. sense in my film, Madame Ida. In real life, Madame Olivier, after Ida died, ran off with everything, whatever was left, whatever jewels and money, whatever. Mm. In fact, Vicky Wolf, who wrote the one kind of biography, m actually met Soretto, who mm. 
you know, spoke absolutely just scathingly about the secretary. So our character is a kind of amalgam mm. of the two of them. Okay. And that is played by the same actress who plays Romaine Burke, Catherine Worth. Yeah. And so, and in fact, you know, it had money been no object, we could have ha easily had 10 people in the cast. And, mm. But we get around it mm. by having certain things on voiceover. Yes. I think people like it anyway, you know, to sort of have small intimate... Am I right in thinking that Marco Gambino, who's playing Donuncio, is Italian? Yes, Marco Gambino is a lovely mm -hmm. Italian actor, so yeah. he's playing uh, Donuncio, and, and that's it. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. a, a, a really nice touch, isn't it, though? I mean, to get that, that sort of authentic mm. it, Italian. Uh, and Ravel is played by Darren Berry. So Darren Berry, who is a wonderful musician in oh, his so he's going to be playing. So he, he will play, and he's also going to be in our first act, but as mm. as a pianist, not as Ravel. So this is really multimedia, isn't it? it? Is. I mean, so we've got we've got music, live music, uh, actual beautiful, someone playing Ravel as Ravel, which is a wonderful idea. We've got dance. Um, obviously, we've got acting. We've got these amazing costumes. We must talk about those. Charles and Patricia Lester, whom I've known actually for a long time, they do the most wonderful creations. Well, I mean, they're, um, I would call them friends, and therefore um, mm. I went to them thinking, you know, where do we get some um, idea of the kind of extravagance and uh, look that she would have had? And so they very kindly obliged and they have also made s the set drapes mm. and things like that so that'll be very exciting to when it all all arrives yeah it sounds absolutely thrilling do we have is there a sort of color wash that i should be talking about i mean what sort of colors do they use are there golds and sort of, i sort of, i can i don't know why but i see gold dust everywhere <laughs> <laughs> well there's cer yeah, certainly the, i mean the drapes are kind of Turquoisey, greeny blue with gold, mm. and oh, right. yeah, so you. <laughs> yeah. Saying that's, I mean, you know, you had to say that, didn't you? So you, you, you got, you intuited that mm. correctly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So this is absolutely thrilling, the whole thing, and not that long a run. Are you hoping to take it on somewhere else? Well, we would absolutely love to take mm. it on somewhere else, and also we would very much be both Christian and I are are best known in New York City. Would very mm. much like to take to, to mm. New York. And uh, also St. Petersburg. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? And Israel. You should go to Israel. And Israel, mm. definitely. Mm. And, um, well, of course, we'd like to take it further here mm. as well. But yeah. Have, having said which, people who don't know the playground, it's a real gem of a theatre, both in looks and, you know, the acting space and what you can do with it. And also, it's just got some lovely vibe, hasn't it? Yes, and one of the things that I think... Uh, separates it from what's, you know, other mm. off West End or fringe theatres is that there's really a very generous playing space. Mm. It's not a tiny little, tiny little box. No, you could do your fuete all across it, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's actually, so it's your theatre. Well, in mm. fact, it's, I have to say it's my, yes, yeah. in my, it's really Peter, mm. Peter Tate. It's his creation, his baby. But yes, I'm, of course, mm. terribly involved with it and did design some so, of it, yeah. yeah. So two things I'll say about that is, remember when I said I had a lovely vibe? I think yes. that's down to the two of you. I think Peter is a very welcoming, warm man. 
which you will agree with, I'm sure. And yes. also, it's the, there's more to it than that, but there's something about these two doors that you require that take you into the theatre that feels like going into another world. Yes, well, they are antique French doors. And in fact, I mean, on art occasions, I enjoy doing interior design. And somebody had asked me to do their place for which those doors were purchased. And then in the end, they didn't go ahead. So the doors were actually very lovingly were donated to mm. the theatre. I just thought they would be perfect. There is something about them. There really is. Every time I see them, I mean, they're, they're incredibly tall, yes. much taller than you can imagine in, a, in an ordinary building. And they're this beautiful... What would you call the the way the wood is done on it? You well, described it's, them. you know, it, it's faded, painted. Mm. Um, in the the front of them mm. is is very beautiful and weathered and atmospheric. Yes, they've got real character. They are two little characters, big characters by themselves, yes. aren't they? Yes, they are. Mm. So, mm. so we were very lucky to yeah. get them. Yes. Yeah, so I should really ask you then: What are your future hopes and plans for this wonderful space? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, we have to say that as being just over two years old, we're very, very pleased at the, um, not just the amount of work, but the quality of work that's been done here. There have been some extremely interesting, oh, so really good productions. So interesting. I've been fascinated by everything I've seen here so far. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And and they are, you know, well, starting with Ida, this, this is quite a you know, female-centric mm. piece, totally female-centric piece. Then there's, uh, right after me, there's a piece the wife of Brian Cox is doing, and she's been directed by Brian in a play called Sinners. Oh, that's so wonderful. That'll be another Another family project. <laughs> another family project. Mm. So that's very exciting. And it's, I think, you know, the, the, the whole idea about the theatre is it's not so much particular kind of work it's just about really doing fascinating quality work in whatever form that might take well that sounds like an intriguing point to stop you can sort of see the future ahead of us now as we start this new year a new decade which i hope will be a wonderful one for the playground that will be our playground our dramatic playground for london thank you very much that's a, p a pleasure Thank you so much, Naomi Sorkin, for talking to me about so many different things, not just Edith Rubenstein, but I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. Thank you. I have as well, Judith. Thank you very much. <laughs>